Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's Mando moment. Mando moment? Okay. <laughs> I tried to think. It's a really, some- really long moment. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a moment to get out Mando moment. <laughs> Yeah, so we're here to talk about chapter three of The Mandalorian called The Sin, which aired on November 22nd, and it was directed by Deborah Chow. All the exclamation points. Oh, my God. A woman directing Star Wars live action. We're here. We made it. I can't believe it. it. We made it. And, of course, we can't forget Victoria Mahoney was second unit director. Sure, but that hasn't come out yet. It hasn't. And we haven't gotten that. And this is the full creative control directorially in a Star Wars live action piece. 100%. I'm just also saying we also need to remember that we do have other women doing great stuff in Star Wars. And she is a director, too. You're right. It hasn't come out yet. And it is second unit. It's not like Deborah Chow is like in charge. Like her name is on top of the list. And man, oh, man, did she blow this episode out of the freaking water. Yeah, I mean, um, this was, I think, the best one yet. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. I think this was by far the best episode. And you know that it's true if I'm saying it tops Dave Filoni's episode. (laughs) So (laughs) you can trust me, listeners. (laughs) Wait, really? You thought that, like, um, given the first episode and the second episode, you liked the first episode more than the second one? I think I liked the first episode better than the second episode. Yeah, now that I say that, I think I agree. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I just I didn't actually give that a lot of thought just because I think the second episode did something different than the first episode did for me. And I, I don't know if I could have I compared them like one to one like that. I just hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, I don't think I've really thought about which I liked better as far as chapter one or chapter two. But chapter three, I can definitively say has been my favorite out of what we've seen so far. Yeah. Man, it was so, so, so good. It felt like a Clone Wars episode come to life with something completely new. It did. I was thinking, I was like, imagine, this is this is often my thought process when I'm watching The Mandalorian now. I go, imagine being Dave Filoni. <laughs> you know, you think about Death Watch and there's that episode in Clone Wars where Ahsoka and Lux, I'm out here like by myself being a Lux Soka shipper, me and like 12 <laughs> other people who actually – and who actually enjoy the character of Lux too, even aside from shipping. I just, I like his character on his own. And anyway, again, I'm one of like 12 people who actually like Lux's character. <laughs> Pushing pa- right past that. <laughs> the shipping for Lexoka isn't even like a big thing for me. I just, I enjoy their dynamic, but I do think he's a super fascinating character on his own. And I always really enjoyed the conversations he had with Ahsoka and what, Anyway, this isn't about Ahsoka and Lux, um, but there's that episode where Lux has partnered with Death Watch, and Ahsoka's like, WTF, that was a big mistake, and they go, do they go to Mandalore? I don't know where they go, but they go to meet Death Watch, and you have this amazing scene where Ahsoka beheads like a bajillion people with her lightsabers. They go to a place. It's very dark. <laughs> the episode itself is very dark. 
and you have all the Mandalorians coming down on like jetpacks and stuff. And the long point of this this story is to say, imagine being Dave Filoni and like this thing that you created in animation with like these jetpacks and these Mandalorians. And like, of course, Boba Fett had a jetpack, but in Cloners, it was like a lot of Mandalorians. And then to actually see that on screen, live action, and actually happening probably on set in some form or fashion – that must have been like so cool because you know that he was like part of designing those jetpacks, how they've evolved through time, like how we started with the ones in Clone Wars, got to Boba Fett's, and then got here to, you know, the time period after Return of the Jedi. I just, I feel like he would have been, I feel like that was probably a tear jerking moment for Dave Filoni. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Anyway, I just, I thought this episode, this episode was the perfect balance for me of heart and badass. And, I, like, I felt every moment of it. I thought it was such a good episode. Yeah, me too. It was just, it was so good. It was so well paced. It Mm -hmm. moved super fast. Everything that happened, like, there were several moments that kind of ripped my heart out. But they were kind of, I don't know, they moved at such a pace that I got a chance to kind of revel in those emotions. Then we moved on, even though it moved kind of quickly. It was so, I, I think this really is you know, a a comment to Deborah Chow's directing, but it it felt so tight. It felt so emotional, so emotionally charged. I completely bought everything that happened in the episode. The action moments felt like straight out of a Western, but equally Star Wars. The Mandalorian moment of them like appearing over the ridge was so moving and so exciting, even as someone who I never really cared that much about, like, you know, the shoot 'em up part of Mandalore. I think that personally for me, I've always been really interested in the whole clan aspect of it, but I've never been like, man, that was super badass. You know, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. in this moment, I was like, wow, it makes sense that people are obsessed with this. And I see why. And I can't imagine being such a, you know, like a Mando Merc or somebody seeing this scene of like, it was just, it was so well done. The, the lines, Oh, I get, I feel like I could, and we are going to talk for quite a while, I assume, because that's just kind of how we roll, about how good the, this episode was. But it is an episode that I honestly can see myself revisiting because it's nonstop emotion, nonstop action, and I don't know, so good. I think this episode did so well with the Mandalorian himself um, because, honestly, that's something that I, I've been – getting used to in the past two episodes. And I think that like the first episode obviously had a hard task of getting us used to this world now of introducing world. There's always like a, not a speed bump, but just an adjustment period. I think with any new Star Wars thing, I think every time you watch a new Star Wars thing, it's like, okay, does this feel like Star Wars? Is this Star Wars for me? Okay. What are we doing? What's new? What do I recognize? You know, I feel like we're, we're kind of always experiencing it, knowing that we've experienced Star Wars before which, again, is a really cool thing about this franchise um, that really sets it apart. But I know we talked about this, I think, in the first or second episode, but it's been hard for me to, like, understand the Mandalorian character, like, what his characterization is, because at first I thought he was going to be a super anti-hero and, um, you know, it was going to take a while to get under that shell. But then, of course, we had these really sarcastic moments with him and these kind of lighter moments that kind of threw me off a little bit because I was like, what are you – What's your tone? What's your vibe here, Mando? (laughs) And then, of course, like these really, um, 
you know, like him saying he's always alone, but then asking the Nick Nolte Ugna to join his crew. I was like, I don't really do I buy. I just wasn't sure about what his characterization was. But I think this episode did such a good job of honing in on the Mandalorian himself and the choices that he was making. And you sent me this interview by Deborah Chow in the New York Times. And they were talking about like the the way that they characterized the Mandalorian. And there's this quote that she said that I think just really kind of one emphasized all the great work that she did in her episode in particular, but then also kind of set things into a little bit more perspective for me personally as an audience for the series as a whole. And she said, quote, there's a lot of stillness in the character of the Mandalorian. All his movement is intentional. There's no fidgeting or relaxing so that any time, even if he makes a small move or turns his head, it becomes meaningful. And I think that she, out of the three episodes we've seen so far, I think that she's excelled the best at emphasizing those kinds of movements. Um, for me, I didn't have like those that kind of trepidation or um, confusion that I felt in the first and second episode about the tone of the Mandalorian. I didn't feel any of that in this episode. Like I really do think that she has handled his character with the mask the best so far out of the three episodes that we've seen. Yeah, I think that it's so true. We've talked a little bit about mask acting and how it's a really difficult thing to do, but so much of that comes from the camera as well. And I really do think the mark of a good director is the ability to show and not tell. And that is a particular challenge when your main character doesn't have any emotions, no eyes, no no facial expressions or anything like that. But I completely understood and felt whatever emotion the Mandalorian was feeling at the time, even if it was particularly ambiguous uh especially when he dropped off the child i think that because the audience felt much trepidation about that we also saw that and like kind of transposed it almost onto the mandalorian and i think because of deborah chow's like expert direction directing and pedro pascal's acting which i honestly think he needs like another I don't know. I think we need to commend his acting as well because, again, mask acting is really tough. And mm-hmm. even just by like the small movements, the small head, the the head movement, everything like that. I don't know. I, I I'm with you. Like, and I I really liked that quote because I think that it it did come across. It was conveyed. Yeah, it really brings into light the fact that when she says there's a lot of stillness in the character, and this was the first episode that I found myself actively comparing the Mandalorian to Kylo and the way that his character is portrayed in the mask. And like you said, we've talked about mask acting, but when we've talked about it with the Mandalorian in particular in our first episode recap, we talked about the moment when he takes the mask off and what that's going to mean for his character versus like Kylo or Vader. But this was the first episode that I kind of thought more about their mask acting while they're still masked (laughs) and how Kylo has such a a frantic, frenetic energy about him in the mask. And that really comes off with like how much he's moving his head, the way that he walks around. Obviously, this is a lot of this is not a lot of it is Adam Driver. It's like 30% Adam Driver. <laughs> um, it's it's all Adam Driver. And I really appreciated her saying that like there's a lot of stillness because I don't know, it was just it, reading that it was like, oh, that's it. That's the thing that I haven't been able to quite pin down with him about like who he is. And it's that there is this stillness because I think that this is such a unique 
show so far where there are so few characters and there is so few dialogue, uh, so little dialogue. And just the fact, I mean, you think about the script, like the the actual script, it's probably like two pages of actual dialogue, right? (laughs) like two to five pages total (laughs) of actual things that the characters are saying and the Mandalorian himself even less. So I think that, I don't know, I just think this episode did such a good job of it. I loved how she talked about the Mandalorian in particular. It really, like I said, clicked things into place for me a little bit more than I think I had been feeling with episodes one and two. And then, like you said, too, I think the pacing, the way that we kind of went from these really still moments to action-packed all the way to the very end where we had that perfect combination of both where they're in the, like, the pickup the pickup truck speeder basically at the end (laughs) and it's just yanni and mandalorian like staring at each other as this like battle is raging on above them that like perfect combination of both i just i loved it so much (laughs) yeah if anyone needs an example of the stillness type moment that we're referring to i think one of the best ones was both times mandalorian was in the cockpit of his ship Mm -hmm. some of those moments had no music and you are really – I think that it's just this really fascinating thing that's happening with the audience and, like, watching the show and, like like I, like I said, transposing emotions onto The Mandalorian, but also kind of letting you breathe a little bit into – he's probably contemplating everything in this moment mm-hmm. in space. There's no music. There's no way for us to tell what he's thinking, but it's enough for us to know that – there's some form of contemplation going on. Yeah. Just the actual physicality of him being so still, um, particularly, like you said, the cockpit moment, but the one at the end when, you know, he has Baby Yoda back with him and, you know, he reaches for the lever and the Mandalorian takes off the the ball at the top of it and unscrews it, but nothing else in the Mandalorian moves. Like he's physically very still to even when his thoughts, like now he has this kid <laughs> and you're right, he's doing like, who knows, his thoughts are probably running a mile a minute or or he already has a plan set in place. That's kind of, I think, the exciting thing to speculate about with him. But his actual movements are very still. You only see his hand move and he drops the ball into Baby Yoda's hand and then it moves back. But nothing else about him is moving. He doesn't really even look at Baby Yoda (laughs) when it happens. But that movement is so meaningful because it is contrasted with the opening scene, which was the same movement, but he was putting Baby Yoda back into It's all these quiet moments. Yeah. That kind of build to this clear understanding of, honestly, the softness of this character. Love a soft boy. (laughs) Yeah, same. Okay, let's talk about the child because every episode I feel like is going to be building on the cuteness of what came before. (laughs) So there's a couple of moments. I think that we should both pick a favorite cute moment. I think... There hasn't been a cuter moment than when after, and I think this is like obviously purposeful, than after the Mandalorian drops him off with Werner Herzog and he's like being wheeled back into the back room and he, the baby looks back. And I'm saying he because I think the doctor did confirm that he it was does. He. he says he, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm gendering him as. But I do think that the the way that he is kind of rolling back, looking back at the Mandalorian makes him like baby crying noise, which is so baby, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's that's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking, but it was like, it it pulled at all your heartstrings because 
I don't think he's been cuter. Like his eyes were big. He was kind of ex- like, oh, uh, oh my god, or like the the ears flapping oh in the wind. God, I that, see. That's what I thought you were gonna say was the when they're riding into town and his ears are blowing in the wind. I was like, they didn't need to do that, it. but they did. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite moment is the is second place is the ears flapping in the wind but the first place is baby yoda actually crawling out of his carts because i remember in the last episode i was asking i was like how does he get out that's a really long way to jump <laughs> and deborah chow said you know what i had the same thought let me show you <laughs> let's, let's explore the physicality let's, of this let's explore, let's explore the logistics <laughs> and you know i love a practical woman <laughs> <laughs> because you know they probably had like a two-hour conversation of like okay so he crawls like this like what's his body proportion he swings around he's gonna drop off we're not actually gonna hear him thud because that might be alarming <laughs> yeah well we, we we say baby yoda because he is he is a baby but the mandalorian refers to him as a child now kid which is like adorable stop it <laughs> <laughs> but i do think that the 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 child has more toddler like motion than a baby even though now he's like bundled doesn't have the cart anymore god and was very biblical almost kind of like swaddled like that yeah a babe swaddled in cloth yeah (laughs) didn't it feel like that i was like this is this feels kind of biblical there a north star (laughs) yeah (laughs) we need to follow (laughs) we're the three kings of orient right that's what i was like okay (laughs) mandalorian's gonna come back and find like frankincense and myrrh and whatever the third gift is in in the razor crest oh it's a christmas story (laughs) it is that's why it's coming out right before christmas oh man and here i thought it had something to do with tross but really no it's christmas it's It's a new holiday special oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that the whole thing it's like me at 6.30 in the morning seeing, you know, from Mando mornings, seeing Baby Yoda climbing out of his crib and then, like, flapping in the wind. The whole, like, his ears flapping in the wind. The whole time, the first 20 minutes, I was just like, stop it. Stop. No. Same. Stop it. I had to pause at the moment I, I called out before when he dropped off the, the child. I was like, no. <laughs> first off, I was like, I can't believe this happened. And he's going to definitely come back for it. He has to. But, oh, yeah. man, that was so adorable. <laughs> But when you saw that the episode was called The Sin, I was like, oh, shoot. Yeah. Let's talk about that because in our Discord, a lot of people were talking about what was the sin. And it was brought up that the sin can mean multiple things. And I think it does. I think I have to give full credit to our Discord for this, but I'll kind of regurgitate it. The sin, I think, is both dropping off the child, which, again, when it was called The Sin, like you said, I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) This is going to (laughs) hurt. Yeah. Um, And also, I think, betraying the Bounty Hunter Guild and, like, going against everything. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I think the... I think the big sin is obviously dropping off the child because that's going to be... And that was something we talked about last episode about, like, in our whole... The comparison of the two eggs, right? We have the Mandalorian with his egg-shaped cradle (laughs) with a baby inside versus the rhino creature and his egg. And I think you had said even when, when and if the Mandalorian sees his egg mistreated then he's going to lash out like the rhino does. And that's exactly what he did. Um, but was- Especially when he sees it in the trash. Yeah, exactly. He saw the egg cracked and broken in the trash. And mm-hmm. I 
Yeah, and, like, the part of the sin is that he actually had to give up the – like, he was the one who gave up the egg that let Baby Yoda go. But, of course, he does go back for the child in the end. Oh, in the most epic shootout. So good. Wow. At some point it did. Uh, this is maybe, like, a tiny bit of a criticism, but I think it was done well, so maybe it's just a comment. It felt very video gamey. It did, like, with him behind the crates. The- okay, this was something I found myself thinking about a lot in this episode was, like, why does nowhere in Star Wars have, like, built-in bookshelves or, like, shelves? <laughs> because things are always just in crates on well, the floor. the Jedi Archives has bookshelves. Yeah, but that was long destroyed. Padme's apartment has bookshelves. I'm just saying that, like, everything we see in the original trilogy, like, a lot of the places we see this place, everything is just on the floor in these big crates. It's just crates. shady. Everything is, like, I think, and I would assume that that building that the Empire was holed up in was almost, you know, like, yeah. they weren't supposed to be there. I, it, it wasn't established at all. I agree. I'm just like, Luke's Luke's home set on Tatooine had built-in shelves. Why can't this place? <laughs> yeah. Me, I'm like, you know, I know. Shelf styling client. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was I, – I still really, like – my heart was pounding during the shootout, so I don't think that the video game nature of it kind of took away from it for me. It was just a familiar format that felt like, okay, in the next room, there's going to be like three stormtroopers that come at you. Okay, so in the next room, two are going to come out, you know? Yeah. Well, remember when we were in – when I came up to Boston a couple weeks ago, we went to that like arcade bar, and we were playing the Star Wars Arcade. Yes, I thought about that. Yeah, and there was the one scene where it was when you were on Hoth in that setting. And as you leveled up, you just got like more and more stormtroopers hiding behind crates on the floor and not on shelves. <laughs> and I think I was really good at Hoth. You were really good on Endor. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was good. I kept it. The only thing I was kind of wondering about is I was like, where is the client? I kind of fully expected the, expected the client to show up at one point and he didn't in the shootout. So I wonder where he went. Yeah. Will he show up again? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I wonder if the client is not going to hire grief to go after the Mandalorian. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, trust nobody. Yeah. I mean, I definitely I, don't think he trusts grief, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I feel like this was another really good example of Deborah Chow's directing because I feel like there were some shots that felt so different. Like the camera was placed below in like the lower third, looking up. Sometimes the Mandalorian was even out of the frame and coming into the frame. And this is very technical, but I think that if you watch the episode again, you didn't notice this. It made for a more dynamic experience that like kind of um, undercut the whole video game aspect, like the Mandalorian kind of coming around the corner and you see him like shooting the stormtrooper, but you really don't see it at all. You see it from the perspective of the only thing that's in focus, which could be just like a helmet Mm -hmm. um, in like the foreground of the image and everything. Like those are shots that you don't normally see in Star Wars. Star Wars is very, and George Lucas especially, is very um, straight on, full scope. He likes to keep everything in the frame. He likes to fill the frame with everything. Mm -hmm. But when you get a new director like Deborah Chow, you get certain like different focal points. And I think that's so important to bring that fresh perspective into Star Wars. And it was really clearly seen in inside the client like fortress. And it became more George Lucas-esque when we came outside to the 
the shootout because there it became way more widescreen, way more. You can see everything that's going on. Very George Lucas-esque. Very Clone Wars. It was just really good. So good. (laughs) (laughs) You, um, this was the first week that we, not the first week, this is only the second week, but this is the first time that we didn't watch the episode together. Like, usually we were, like, pretty much hitting play at the same time, and you slept in a little later, so I started it first, and I was like, ugh, ugh. (laughs) yeah i don't know we're not we're not together next week either so i don't know when i'm gonna watch it next week but it has i might get up early and watch it i know it's gonna be a problem (laughs) thanksgiving problems (laughs) that is gonna be a problem well it's gonna suck so much i hadn't even thought about that yeah yeah Yeah, i might just go quote work downstairs in the hotel lobby (laughs) watch it on my tiny phone yeah that because that like 35 40 minutes that i had finished and you hadn't i was like no because <laughs> then we didn't get to talk about it because like, the last few episodes we talked about it while we got ready for work respectively but I was already like done and on my way to work by the time you finished it and I was like this is the worst <laughs> yeah it, yep yes so can we talk about some of the like symbolic things I picked up on in this episode this, yeah um, no actually <laughs> let's backtrack let's just let's, let's yeah. not actually like, <laughs> let's like not cover that at all so the thing that i thought was so interesting is and i noticed this i think the first episode but i've never seen this in star wars in the little town that again no idea what planet this is there's no planet mention no town mention which i think is really kind of rare for star wars to like not know everything about your setting even for the Rise of Skywalker, it feels like we know already all these planet names. They have, none of the characters have even name dropped it either. Right. Like, I feel like I'm, we're going into the Rise of Skywalker with like, oh, yeah, I know Kijimi. Like, what? Why Why is there room in my brain for that? Who knows? <laughs> Kijimi. Yeah. So regardless, I think this little town had this really interesting looking arch in the town. I put a photo in the show notes, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. And it really reminded me of, I paused it, I kind of looked at it, I keep showing it, um, the Mandalorian walks through it and his exit. Um, it really reminded me of the sculpture and the doors, the Gates of Hell by um, Rodin. And I, I just, I don't know, I thought it was, I didn't, I don't know what to make of that. But I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like an arch that like guards the city. What do I think about that? And I think maybe it could symbolize the fact that this is like baby Yoda's hell. This is some this is someone's our second main character, baby Yoda at this point. Mm -hmm. Right. His hell is being returned here. But I also think that like in my tiny bit of research I did about this, I kind of stumbled across this uh, this tarot reading site, which sounds really funny. But I think there's a lot of symbolism and like analysis of symbols that goes into tarot reading. So um, there's an arch card and there's this quote that really kind of stuck with me. Um, Here's the quote. Arches also talk to us about opportunity. I'm wild over doors, windows, arches because they symbolize a universal law, which is, quote, there is always another way. And I think this is exactly, exactly what this episode is saying, that there is always another way. He doesn't need to drop off the child. He doesn't need to follow through. He can rescue the child. The Mandalorian group, the tribe, can rebuild and relocate. This is the way. I feel like there is always another way. And that is 
also so Star Wars, right? That there's always another mm-hmm. path to take and it's your path to choose. So I really like the symbolism of the arch in the city that is so monumentally important for our main character, the Mandalorian, for the choices that he makes, because now he has a target on his back forever. And there, but he knows that he chose potentially, I hope so, the right path for him because there wasn't always another way for him to get out of his bounty. Yeah, exactly. I think this was, I hadn't, I like had completely forgotten about Rodan's Gates of Hell. It's been a while since I'd looked at it. But the only other thing I think we've seen similar in Star Wars, or at least that I can remember off the top of my head, was there's an arch into uh, the city on Jakku, the village on Jakku. That we see with Ungar or Whitplay or when Ray is going in. I'm like, oh, yeah, there is. There is. It's like made up of ship parts. Yeah. But actually, I think there's one that's like a big, like, would be like a sandstone one or something. Mm -hmm. But I think they, I think you're right. Like, it is this kind of like passing through kind of thing. And, you know, there's a reason that we have the saying when when one door closes, a window opens or another one opens because they are moments of opportunity. But then I think too, like architecturally speaking, like arches, the thing that stood out to me in like the screen cap that you posted is just how big it is. Like this arch is very large and in charge (laughs) over the rest of the streetscape. And it makes me think obviously like Napoleon and like the Arc de Triomphe and those types of things were installed as like war trophies. And they were often inscribed with like the loots of war and the subjugated peoples over them. Um, So I don't think that this arch, not that we saw anyway, has any kind of inscribings. And if it's like the one on Jakku, I don't think it would necessarily, but I think it is interesting to like spin these out. And Charlotte just posted um, in our Google Doc a picture of the art of the Star Wars of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order game, and uh, it's like a cathedral, and that is very much like the Gates of Hell. Like that's your Gates of Hell. <laughs> I think it is like literally that's your just Gates like of Hell that. connection right now. That I'm, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, that's your Gates of Hell connection. But like, you see, like how just how big the arch is, and. Like when people when when you see these sorts of things in architecture, it's meant to draw your eye upward. Like the reason why steeples are designed the way they are is that you, it draws your eye up towards the sky, i.e., towards the heavens, towards God. Like there's a reason that it's so big and monumental. It's to say that we can build something this big because we're wealthy enough and have the manpower and engineering capabilities and you don't. It's like a it's like a my horse is bigger than your horse kind of thing. So at least in some obviously not every arch, but every single arch says this. <laughs> um, but I think like given the size of this one, it 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 does remind me of the Arc de Triomphe and similar structures like that. But you're right, like even in the Jedi Fallen Order one and the Gates of Hell by Rodin, that one was heavenly inspired by Dante um, and his Inferno, and that's like uh, yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah, it, it is. is inspired. Sorry, not heavily by. Yes. But that's like about. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, oh, that is thirty percent Adam Driver. <laughs> no, it's all Adam Driver, Galen. <laughs> um, but like walking through, passing through doorways, thresholds, things change. There is elements of transformation. Yes, that's a, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Is this is the crossing of the threshold in the Cambellian hero's Into journey to fatherhood. 
<laughs> basically partnership fatherhood a new journey a new understanding of the way he sees the world i wonder if we'll get an even bigger example of this of this transformation like obviously this is only episode three this is not the only transformation that the mandalorian is going to undergo this is almost this is almost like his call to action in a way because this is the moment like when when the danger actually starts because now he's now he has the child and he he's now kidnapped the child and so going through this threshold is initiating that which is part of his transformation but this is just the beginning piece of it because obviously this is not where his character journey ends yeah yep it's it's a lot to think about i just think the arch is really weird and it made me think about a lot of things it is you're right i hadn't picked up on it until you put it in our notes and i was like man that's a big ass arch yeah, it's huge. And it's it's strange because the city itself is really low to the ground. It's like mm-hmm. all the buildings are only one story or like one and a half stories. And the arches really, it is, for lack of a better term, monumental that it feels like there's something there. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to talking about the trackers because I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so <laughs> the trackers is such a weird thing because it really brings about the thought that there's some sort of like microchip <laughs> inside of baby Yoda Horrible. that is activated. Well, yeah, but like tell me something else that like correlates to that because it really is like microchipping your dog. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it is. You're right. I think that this episode is almost asking you to question how many people have these trackers because even the Mandalorian asks a couple times, how many people, how many trackers did you give out? You know, how many people did grief? He asked how many trackers grief gave out and the entire, it seems like the entire town has them. And it really just brings about a lot of questions. I mean, we talked about this in episode two, but like, is this entire show going to be him fending off people with trackers? Because at this point you have to wonder what's inside the child that is activating these trackers and who has the button who triggered the button to like set off the fact that baby Yoda had left uh, the empire's hands and all these things. I'm just like, is this the main plot point? Like (laughs) I wouldn't mind it. It just seems like it could get a little repetitive or is this just a something that they're using in this episode to kind of show that, the whole world is really against the Mandalorian at this point because everyone is after a selfish reward for capturing this child. Well, I think it was um, – I think you and I had anticipated that this actual moment of whether or not the Mandalorian returns the child or doesn't would not happen in episode three. I know that that was part of the surprise for me. It's like, oh, we're already here. And yes, he is in fact giving the child back within the first 10 minutes of this episode. Because <laughs> I think we had kind of speculated that maybe like in route to returning the child, he is fending off all these other people who are also following the tracker. And during that time, he grows to love the child. Um, but I think it all happened a lot faster. And I wonder if it's like a, if it leaves this perimeter you know, it starts going off. What I was kind of, <laughs> thank God they didn't. But, you know, I, I almost, while I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, what if it's like he has like a self-destruct button, like the client. Like like Anakin, who, the slave who has a tracker inside yeah, of him and yes. it blow you up, boom. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> actually, did I just made that connection. 
Oh, I, why are why are Baby Yoda and Anakin so similar? Born in the same yeah. year, it really just blows my mind. <laughs> really, just makes you pause. It really it? does. <laughs> it really does. It just and and one thing that was interesting is that the client says the asset is extremely like when the Mandalorian asks how many fobs did you give out and the client responds this asset is extremely important to me I had to ensure its delivery the this is this episode also the thing I also loved about this episode in a list of many things is that I feel like this episode gave us good answers about things but also led you down more speculation trails because I know sometimes in and really the only other comparable thing is like star wars uh is like resistance and rebels and clone wars is that sometimes and, and even like the force awakens like we're only given questions we're not given any answers to things and that can be fun and frustrating at the same time but i think that this episode balanced those two really nicely in my opinion but one thing that I started thinking about, and we asked this every week in our Rebels recap, which is Fulcrum Files when season four was airing, and in our Resistance recap is what's the state of the Resistance? We are always asking that in those series. And this one kind of got me thinking about what's the state of the Empire, because the client says that the asset was important to me specifically. He doesn't say to my boss or my client or to the Empire and grief and when the mandalorian tells grief you know he's working for the empire why do we trust him and grief's like there is no empire it's all warlords and mercenaries but we're seeing the client with an imperial medallion surrounded by imperial stormtroopers and so it's like who is important to you but what does that mean? Like, who actually are you? And what is your affiliation with the Empire today? Because it's obviously still ongoing. Well, I think it's interesting because you're right. I thought about this, too, in terms of the state of the Empire. I think the more interesting question is what's the state of the New Republic? Because clearly the Mandalorian doesn't think much about the New Republic. You know, Grief goes, if it bothers you, go back to the core and report it to the New Republic. And he goes, that's a joke. To me, it makes me think about what happened to the Mandalorians in their purge and what was the involvement of the Empire there? What was the involvement of the New Republic? And did neither of those parties care at all about what happened in this purge? Or was one of them responsible? What happened? And I think that it's interesting to even consider. To me, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like the Mandalorian would have no trust in like the major government. But I do think a little bit about like the books that we've read and everything about how like squabbly the New Republic is and how it's kind of shaky at this point in terms of rebuilding after the Empire and how that sort of shakiness is probably felt throughout the galaxy and I think it's interesting to consider that the Mandalorian would think that the New Republic wouldn't care about the Empire offshoots, like any sort of imperial anything in the galaxy. Like, I, I'm surprised to even consider that, you know, Leia wouldn't even really care about that or, you know, that the Mandalorian would be forced to think that. I don't think anyone has trust in the New Republic. I think it's still too soon after the fall of the empire and i think that grief knows that i don't think grief is saying like well i would go and turn into the new republic i think he knows that no one has faith in the new republic so like it's an empty promise 
Yeah. Um, I don't think that grief would ever go to the New Republic was something he cared about either. I don't think anyone would. But yeah, I just – it. I think it's really interesting that, you know, now we've had – like in the trailer of Werner Herzog and in the first episode is talking about how, you know, there was supposed to be peace but all I've seen is chaos and he's wearing this imperial medallion and still has imperial troopers. But then you have grief who's like – There is no more empire. Well, clearly there's something. And I think where we are, you know, saying that they need to go back to the core, I think, implies that we're near the outer rim. Of course, we're talking about Palpatine's contingency plan, the things that are hidden in the far, what is it, the outer reaches. Outer reaches. I think think we could maybe speculate that we're close to that area, like on the edge of, of... the the galaxy wild space yeah yeah i wouldn't be surprised if we're near that area and that's part of what grief is doing or um the client is doing i don't know it just uh it it was like kind of obvious that not obvious but made me think about how it will be obvious if this is proven true (laughs) that the client is in fact still working for the empire with what you said these offshoots that are still in operation but that he's also working for someone like pride or for Palpatine himself. Uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of questions. It's a, like we said, the, the question of the trackers was a lot of questions. My big question, though, is how are they going to get the tracker out of Baby Yoda? Because that seems <laughs> I don't know. not fun. And like, that's going to be a really hard scene to watch. <laughs> Super invasive. Yeah. It's not going to be good. I mean, we'll see it. We'll see if that's even how they work. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't think we have the confirmation that's how that's that that is how it works. Like the story could write something that it's like maybe it is closed or something. Like who knows, right? That seems too easy. But it's it's strange because who put this tracker in Baby Yoda's clothes or in him that Werner Herzog has the frequency for that he could pass off to these hundreds of other trackers. Mm-hmm. There's Watto. Watto sold it to him. <laughs> he bought that technology from Watto, who was also using it on Anakin. <laughs> so let's talk about the fact that the Wilro Hood um, ice cream machine is now a container for money in Star Wars. It's amazing. And like it makes so much sense <laughs> because it makes sense that that's why he'd be carrying it and running with it. He's like, do you know how much Beskar is in this thing? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's Beskar inside of that, but like his his entire life savings he's running away with because they got to evacuate Cloud City. Like, duh, of course that's exactly what's in there. It's so funny. (laughs) It's like a a metal briefcase that you see like gangsters hold their money in. (laughs) But it's an ice Yeah, it is. It is. Oh, gosh. That was such a perfect place to put it. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) It was so good. But here we see another example, though, when the client hands over the the payment for the child to the Mandalorian of Beskar being kind of flaunted and almost in like a taunting way. And we talked about this in our last, uh, I think our first episode about how the Beskar is really kind of dangled above the Mandalorian's head in terms of like a cultural offering. And 
it is really used to persuade him to do the bad thing. And I do think that it's interesting if we can like talk a little bit about the physicality of the Beskar, that it is branded with Imperial marks and how the Mandalorians then look at it as dirty, like dirty money. And I, it felt right that the Mandalorians would approach when, when the Mandalorian goes to uh, the armorer and is, you know, talking about getting new plates and everything. And the Mandalorian's approach, which definitely sounded like John Favreau, still unconfirmed if that's John Favreau, but it, it definitely sounded like Previsla's son. <laughs> <laughs> so I really liked that scene. I thought it was really well done. There was a lot of dialogue in it. And I had to watch it a couple times, honestly, because I was missing a lot. And I just wanted to make sure that I soaked it all in. But I do think that this, like, understanding of the Beskar, the steel itself as like dirty and having to be like fully transformed and made into something new. And there's that line. I don't have it written down, but oh, I do. My my armor has lost its integrity. I may need to begin again. It felt so, it's very on the nose, <laughs> but I feel like it like you can't get more obvious than that this is the point that like he needs to transform this like terrible deed into something anew like he needs to renew it and i think that by the mandalorians all calling out that it looks like dirty that this is not what the mandalorians stand for that like in any sort of entanglement with the old imperial ways that were you know part of the great purge um it needs to be like reborn into something else and like put out for better deeds going forward. Like always have to reserve some Beskar for the foundlings, like the foundlings of the future, the foundlings, like this is the way all these things. Um, is there anything that you thought about that with like the exchange of Beskar? I think the, the, yeah, obviously I agree with everything that you were talking about, about the client kind of bribing the Mandalorian with something that he knows he'll take. What I picked up on or what added to that conversation, I think, in this episode was that it's just as important for everyone else in the galaxy, too. Like, Grief has Beskar that he holds, that he shows the Mandalorian to, which I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think there is this camera movement with the Mandalorian or his head tilts for him to also be like, oh, like, you shouldn't have that. Like, you are not Mandalorian. That I think was interesting. And the armorer points out as well, she says, now that you have this, there'll be a lot of eyes on you. And it is, like, it's very obvious that it's Beskar <laughs> on his armor, you know? Yeah. And I, and kind of going back to, like, the, the cultural appropriation and branding conversation that it brings up, I think it was very pointed to that you see the Imperial logo melt off when it's being smelted and turned into the armor for the Mandalorian, like a reclamation of that like mm -hmm. important thing. It makes you wonder like how exactly they got this car, how it like where they mined it out of. I think to the like the Mandalorian. I don't know what that skull is. You know, like the Mandalorian skull. It's a mythosaur yeah. skull. It, the one outside of the forge, that one is made out of Beskar. Definitely. And that's a lot of Beskar. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's clearly very valuable. 
Um, I think something like that whole scene, like you said, was just there was so much in it that they were talking about. Um, you know, what is the Great Purge? Uh, they say that our world was shattered by the Empire for whom this coward now shares tables. I don't think one of the critiques I would have of this show is that I don't think that the show has done a good job of uh, demonstrating just how underground the Mandalorians are. Because in our first episode, remember, we were really confused about IG-11, like saying that he was in the guild. We were like, wait, wait, wait. Is that like part of the Mandalorians? Are all Mandalorians in the guild? Is it just the yeah, Bounty no. Guild? There's like the Bounty um, Guild and then there's the tribe. Then there's the Mandalorians. Yeah, yeah, which are now a tribe instead of a clan, which is interesting. Yeah. Jonah Marie actually brought that up and I can't stop thinking about it. The transformation mm-hmm. of clan to tribe. It feels like the strange like downgrade and like rebranding almost after the purge that I don't know I can't get away from it for some reason well it's like everyone is in the tribe it's like yeah. there's only one tribe left now right and especially if like, we have pre- like previous uh a Vizla, right a, then a Vizla, the, like there's Singular like Vizla. no house Vizla anymore yeah. there's like just one of them is part of this tribe Yeah, I think that there are so many questions about what happened to the Mandalorians. And I think obviously we'll find out more about that as the series goes on. Um, Yeah, the way that they talk about the foundlings too, it kind of made me think about like the foundlings are the future. And at first we thought that was just in reference to the Mandalorian's conversation. Like the Mandalorian was donating part of his Beskar to the foundlings. But when we had all of the other Mandalorians in there, like agreeing, it kind of made me wonder, like are all Mandalorian children considered foundlings now as if like, because if you think if there was this huge event on Mandalore from the empire or whoever that destroyed them, then all the Mandalorians would have gone to like different parts of the galaxy. And so it's almost like trying to find all the members of your tribe again. And so everyone would be a foundling then. And like that money is going back into finding Mandalorians and then bringing them together and like becoming a tribe again. And maybe at one point finding a new homeworld. You know, you think about Zeb in Rebels and how his homeworld was destroyed and how him and the the remaining um, – what is his species? Lasat. Yes, Lasats. How the few remaining Lasats find a new planet together. Like, I wonder if we'll have a similar thing with the Mandalorians. Um, I just, like, I thought that it was really great how, you know, we started in episode one with this conversation, which was just between the Mandalorian and the Armorer. And we thought it was just, like, between the two of them. But now in this episode, we get to see that the conversation is actually inclusive of all the Mandalorians. Like, they're all on this one track which is far superior to any animosity animosity they might have between each other (laughs) Um, and like being jealous over the best car or using the best car that came from the empire um, that their loyalty to Mandalore to their tribe is what takes priority. And, and two, I was like the way that they talked about the Mandalorians too in this episode. Again, I don't think the show has done a great job of showing that like, this whole cover, they call it a, co- a covert, um, like where the forge is and everything down there is like hidden. Um, and that everyone in this town is surprised to see all these Mandalorians there. I don't think they did a good job of like showing that this was like a hidden place and that these Mandalorians weren't out in the open day to day. 
Yeah, they had that line about how only one can go up to the surface at this at at a time. Yeah. Which is so interesting, but I don't know if I agree with your critique of like they didn't do a good job. I just don't think that there's been enough time to establish that. And I think that we'll probably see that revisited, especially now that they have to relocate. And like, what does that mean for relocation? I think that now that their cover is completely exposed, um, now with the shootout, I wonder what's going to happen next in terms of their new covert. I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Mandalorian will be involved in that somehow. And I think that's where our gateway into understanding about exactly, just exactly how, like, what are the logistics of this? I think we'll find out then. I think so, too. I just, I think that, like, for example, with the first time the Mandalorian goes to the Forge in episode one, like where the, the blacksmith is. They could have, like, sh- they just show him immediately in this hallway with all these other Mandalorians. They don't show him, like, going through, like, a secret door or something like that, you know? I actually think they do show him going through a secret door. A secret door? I don't remember that. If so, I stand corrected. But it's just, I don't know. It's just kind of hard for me to believe, like, that this small town where there's, like, one bar that Grief just sits yeah. at, there are all these Mandalorians there with this, like, giant Beskar Mythosaurus head that no one has ever seen and like no one realizes like hey that mandalorian wasn't here yesterday yeah (laughs) i don't know there's just like a little bit of that i'm not quite sure i think has been done as well in the show as it could have been because the other option is that these mandalorians are taking off their helmets when they're going like above ground basically which seems to go against their code i don't know I, I think you're right. It's going to be really interesting to see them reset at the covert, wherever they do that, how they do that, how they communicate that to people, what kind of like frequency they're on. I think that'll be really great. Um, I really loved seeing the armorer this episode. I think she's such a cool character. A lot of people have been talking about the Mandalorian armor recently, and I think it's worth noting that the armor herself, her helmet in particular, looks a lot like an owl, I think, like the way the eyes are shaped which, of course, owls are wise. And then we have the uh, connection to the Greek goddess Athena, who is often depicted with an owl. She's considered the wise goddess. She's also very skilled in battle. It all kind of goes together. And I didn't pick up on this because I don't know enough about it, but the Mandalorian armor itself looks a lot like the ancient Greek armor of the hoplites. Um, And the hoplites... The thing that most people know them for is that they had this very specific battle strategy where they they have like these full length shields and they would basically link the shields together to create this impenetrable fortress as they approached on their enemy. And it was very successful. It's depicted in a, a lot of different things in the ancient world. So I think that that was that's an interesting thing to pull on uh, with the design of the Mandalorian armor, which has obviously been around since Boba Fett's time. But just to think about how the Mandalorians didn't abandon our Mandalorian at the end of the episode, I think is kind of a, not a callback, but just like the hoplites themselves in ancient Greece, they were connected in order to protect the whole rather than the individual. And that's kind of what we saw at the end of this episode too. So yeah, absolutely. I think that the script went out of the way to show us that there's some animosity among the Mandalorians, like they don't agree on everything. They each have their own separate weapon. Like they're obviously all kind of different. And regardless, at the end, they will defend each other because weapons are their religion. Protecting is their religion. Staying together is the only way that they can survive. 
just to go back to your your discussion over how the armor like her helmet looks like an owl it's hard for me not to see dave filoni in that because dave's wife loves owls (laughs) yeah and in rebels like that's why um the convoy mora yeah the convoy and i i was gonna say her name but i forget it sometimes morai is an owl because his wife really likes owls so like and I think that, like that's it. Just like <laughs> Dave really likes wolves, like her wife really likes owls, like his <laughs> wife really likes owls. So she, I think that like, I, it's not the first time owls, like an owl look, has appeared in Star Wars, and it always has this connotation of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. So here's the question: If uh, you were best friends with Dave Filoni, what would he put into Star Wars for you, and be like, oh, I put that in because my friend Charlotte likes it. Uh, it would probably be something like Naboo esque, honestly. Yeah, no, but like a like a real world thing. Like for Dave, it's wolves. He puts in owls. His wife likes owls. I don't know. I, I don't really have a good answer for that. My life is Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Um, maybe like a bottle of wine. Like we get some more. Like we go to like a vineyard. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't say like more like Egyptian influence. Yeah, I think that would be interesting, too. We do have that arc in Clone Wars. I think it is the Zagan arc, but I don't remember yeah. exactly. So we do have that. So, yeah, I, I would definitely be interested in seeing more of that. I think it would be cool. I would. I think it would be cool to see more of, like, Egyptian architecture into Star Wars. I think they have some really trippy architecture that could be really cool uh, in the galaxy far, far away. So, yeah, yeah or maybe, like, a... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think something like that. I think that would be good. So anytime that anyone wants to make sure that I can become best friends with Dave Filoni so that this can happen, I would, you know, tweet me. (laughs) (laughs) So back to talking about the armor, I think that she represents a really interesting character, just especially because she's the only female speaking role. And it's frustrating. I'm not saying it's not frustrating because it really is frustrating. And it's something that I am like a lot of us women are noticing, you know. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say, like, I do wonder if it's intentional. I do. I'm kind of getting the sense that it is intentional in the same way that it felt intentional that Tam and it was like frustrating as an audience member in Resistance when Tam was like fully separated from the main crew on Star Wars Resistance. We were like, why? We don't understand. Like what? You know, and I think that perhaps something similar is happening here um, with the Mandalorian because we know that the next few episodes is the Mandalorian going to see his I think I think his old friend Cara Dune Cara Dune gotta say Cara keep forgetting it's Cara Cara Dune it's Cara (laughs) (laughs) all of you are saying her name wrong it's Cara and that's straight from Gina's mouth (laughs) Cara and like the other three women whose names are escaping me who like have made a lot of appearances throughout like the press tour and everything and that th- that's coming, I think, at be- beginning with the next episode. And I just have to wonder, like, what does this say about the Mandalorian's, like, relationship with the feminine? Because right now it's, like, completely cut off, except for the, like, softness that his, like, paternal instincts bring to caring for the child. And then we have a character like the Armorer who is basically, like, the head 
of this tribe. And she can stop an argument with just a couple of words. And I think that that's really powerful. I do think that it's like a, a mistake that there's not more women in this, but I am because I am in the privilege to wait for the women to come into the show. I, I just like, I have to wonder what the story implications are for this, whether it's symbolic or what's going to, like, I think it's really interesting now that like, I think that it's confirmed that the next episode, which is Bryce Dallas Howard's episode um, is going to be Mandalorian reuniting with Cara Dune or meeting Cara. And like, we've discussed what her role is going to be and hopefully that she wouldn't take on the, what was the word we used? The like a stereotypical mother. Yeah, like a stereo. I, I I don't want that. I think that that's just not the way that we should go at all. But like, I do think that it's interesting now that the Mandalorian is leaving this planet filled with men, except for one woman, <laughs> and going hopefully to visit an old friend. And I think in like a lot of the shots that have been released on Entertainment Weekly, like a couple months ago, did include like like a couple more women in a shot with him. And I just wonder what that's going to be. And I do think that it is him like reuniting with the feminine. But I do think that it has taken away from some opportunities for inclusion in the past three episodes. Yeah, I think that's where it gets difficult because it's like at this point – it better be intentional. Like there better be a like a yeah, really good that's, story. I think that's reason. what I'm getting at. Is that like I I I feel like it is so blatant that I'm like people are noticing this, right? Like this is something that is supposed to be happening. Like we're supposed to feel this like really uncomfortableness about the lack of women, right? Right. <laughs> that like <laughs> nervous laughter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think like the the armor as a woman it makes a lot of sense because like most of the women leaders that we've seen from Mandalore have been women, so that makes sense. But and I think it's so hard because I want to believe that there is this good reason for it in the story, but I think that there could have been like more women in the background. You know, I think yeah, it's one thing to say that like. Or, you know, the the Mandalorian is going on this journey where he is reuniting with a feminine and that, like, Cara Dune's character and the other, like, main female characters are going to have a bigger role in that that needs to come later. I think that's one part of the story and problem slash story, both, honestly. But then it's another when none of your background characters are women either. Like, none of the bounty hunters are women. None of the droids read as feminine. Um, I think that... For me, that's kind of where I get hung up because I'm like, yeah, I think the story could still be serviced in the way – like if it is intentional, I think the story could still be serviced in the same way by saving your main female characters after the Mandalorian has, you know, like adopted the kid on his own. But there's literally a whole town (laughs) there. Um, Like, like even the bart the bartender isn't even a woman, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because I'm like kind of crying inside. Yeah, it's a lot. It, it is a lot, and I think that there there is just opportunity. And like, the Mandalorian is doing so much for diversity and people of color. Like Deborah Chow herself is a person of color and a woman, and you don't 
you don't want to knock one thing and not also acknowledge the really great things that Star Wars is doing too with this show. And Star Wars, honestly, in a lot of ways has been very behind (laughs) in this department. So, but I think like, I think as fans, we have to appreciate the steps that are being took while taken while also acknowledging that like, hey, you could have had like half a dozen women in the background and it would have changed nothing about your story and meant a lot for the audience too. Yep. Yep. So, and like there wasn't, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to think of something where they're like, this is an all male society, like here on town, like you can only be a man to enter this planet. Like <laughs> there's nothing like that because it doesn't make sense for the story. Like it doesn't make any sense in the world that Star Wars has set up, set up for any of its planets or anything so far. And they don't even try to do that with this planet that they're on. And obviously there is a woman there um, in with the Mandalorians. So why aren't there any other women anywhere else? I don't know. Yep. And like even the, it's definitely a problem. It's a big problem. And grief says too, he says them, um, uh, I can take you to the twilight hot baths. Oh my God. Healing I know. Waters. I was like, I literally paused and I was like, seriously, which we did that. A brothel. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I like really, does that really need to be a thing? A hundred percent. No. No. And I'm like, that's, the, that's when we're going to bring up women for the first time. Yeah, was, <laughs> that's what we're so going much. with. <laughs> yeah. um, so I definitely think that there is a lot of room for improvement. Like with the background and I'm I like have absolute faith in Gina Carano and Cardoon and I'm so excited. But that has been glaringly obvious and uh that's really all I can say about it. <laughs> it's been yep. glaringly obvious and excited for next week on that front. I will <laughs> end there. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's move to something a little bit later, which is the Mandalorian has never removed his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> the quote is, have you ever removed your helmet? No. <laughs> has it ever been removed by others? Never. <laughs> I have so many questions and all of them are logistical <laughs> because just like the internet, I feel like this had the internet ablaze. You know, I had joked on Twitter for a long time about the Mandalorian being a never nude, like in Arrested Development. But this is like, it's really like, oh my God, I'm cringing so hard at this concept because the the idea that like, he, how does he eat? How does he brush his hair? Is he bu- Does he have a beard? I What's happening? <laughs> like, they must just mean, like, in a conflict situation, right? Yeah, they that's what I think. They actually right? mean you've never taken it off. <laughs> I have to believe that it's just, like, publicly. Yeah. Because you can't sleep with the big helmet on. <laughs> you just, you can't. It's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Maybe next episode we'll see him, like, tuck Baby Yoda in and then take off his helmet. I don't know. I think that it's going to be a bigger moment. Oh, we've had this conversation. We have. I think it could be a big moment. I I still think that I think him putting it on is the bigger moment from what we know of his character so far. And the fact that they even asked this question, honestly, um, that, like, receiving your armor, receiving your helmet is a huge thing. So, yeah, or it could be both. I wouldn't be surprised if it's both, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, so, <laughs> I she Charlotte did actually put in the show notes in all caps. So many questions. All of them logistical. <laughs> it's, it's like, 
It's I can't. So families do get more than one. Like, what if one gets dented? Like, what happens if the no? I mean, that's the, the whole visor part of the best gets seals. Like, then you get a new visor. Yes. Yeah, so just then you'd have to take it off to get it installed. I know it's kind of crazy. And again, this is like, how do the Mandalorians? Like, are they all just chilling in this basement until our Mandalorian leaves? And then they're like, well, he's off planet. Guess one out of the twenty of us can go to the bathroom now. Above ground. It's just, it's just kind of, um, I don't know. I think they need to expand upon that a little bit because I was shocked. <laughs> like, I just, I can't. I can't. <laughs> so many, so many thoughts, so many mm-hmm. questions. Dude's got to remove his helmet. Like, in the downtime. He does. He has to. <laughs> he has to. I have to believe that he does <laughs> in order for me to think so this how is does normal. He Netflix and chill with the helmet on. Like, that's just not. There's no chilling. <laughs> Although that is what Deborah Chow said. She's like, he doesn't relax. Okay, so we're still in the forge, right? Okay. So one, something that I know will get picked up on throughout the other episodes is I think it's really interesting that the forge is the only place that so far we've had these flashes of memory from the Mandalore that is only happening yeah. here because you think it's like, oh, it's the, you know, the loud sounds, like gunshot, like blaster shots. But that doesn't happen when he's in battle. It's specifically here with the Mandalorians, like with this like almost sacred space that they have where their armor is created. It is a sacred space. They treat it as such. And in this, in these flashbacks, we got just a smidge more information where we see that his parents presumably close the door on him and then they get blasted open by like a really scary looking droid. And then we don't see who actually gets the child out of that situation. And it just makes me wonder, like, kind of back to our conversation about, you know, the Mandalorians versus the Jedi, like foundlings, how they're brought into this tribe and into this lifestyle. And even though it's saving them and isn't inherently bad necessarily, it wasn't their choice, just like the Jedi like when children are brought in, it's kind of the same situation. And so like getting this armor is both a sign of honor, but then also a memory of everything that he lost in that time, which was his family, his parents, um, probably. So no, I just think it's interesting how this is the only place we've had those flashbacks. And I didn't know what you thought about it. Yeah, I think this place really reminded me of like the Oracle at Delphi mm-hmm. and how it really is like a place of truth and a place of like sacred, like ra- gathering around. And um, I think that like the exposure of, I don't know, like them welding the armor and like forging forward. I think it's really fascinating and an interesting story choice. That this, like, like you said, the only place that he has these flashbacks is here when he's trying to move forward, but he is perpetually brought back. I just don't know what I think about that, honestly. I think that it's it's a really interesting choice. And on the ladies at Scavenger's Horde were talking about how they thought this was kind of um, choppily directed. And I agree in the first episode. But I think that in this episode, you get a sense, like you said, that it is interesting that it's the only place that this happens. That he has this almost like PTSD almost reaction to Mm -hmm. hearing the armor being forged and 
I do think that this place is like Oracle-esque, like the truth is kind of being revealed here. Like in this moment, as the audience member, you're seeing behind the mask, like you see him as a child, you see him as uh, uh, a child in danger, which again is definitely supposed to parallel what's happening to baby Yoda. And he's supposed to be thinking about himself and how he is also an orphan in that moment like what what happened to him when he was orphaned like this is a flashback to the clone wars which again love that because we have the super super battle droids and everything and i think in this moment of trying to move forward he is being really pulled back to remember his essence about how he started and he is supposed to think about like he he himself is thinking about how while when he was a child, he was reaching out for help. And that's exactly what baby Yoda essentially did. And he didn't like succumb to that help. And I think that there's a little bit of regret here where how can he move forward if this memory of the past that is mirroring so closely to what exactly just happened, um, he cannot move forward properly. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting when we think about what his relationship, if he does or doesn't know Cara Dune, is. I think he does know Cara. I think it's established that they're old friends. Okay. (laughs) Like, I think that that would, like, came out in in something. I could be wrong about that, but I do think that that was said. So if he does know her, like, if they have – if they're old friends and they were probably young when they knew each other, and so – Maybe she's experienced one of these episodes before. Yeah. So I think that that's going to be really fascinating to see him actually have a conversation with, if he does know her already, someone he probably trusts. Maybe. I just, I really like this like connection though between uh, the Mandalorian himself and Yoda and how they're both kind of orphaned. And there's this whole foundling thing going on. I do think that there's like this interesting undertone of like, adoptive stories that is happening in the Mandalorian that I think that we should probably pick up on about that is kind of bridging the difference between found family and actual family Mm -hmm. that Star Wars kind of keeps very separate. And now I think that in this story, it's kind of creating something new and something that we really haven't, not that we haven't seen this kind of story, obviously Luke and Leia are both like adopted, but I do think that it's, I don't know. I think that you have this connection now of we talked about this, you know, maybe 20 minutes ago about how perhaps everyone who is a Mandalorian and in this underground group are all foundlings. Um, Baby Yoda is now potentially a foundling and the, the stress of the importance of the foundlings and how they are the future. And this is the way this whole like this is the way thing. Like it's a lot to think about just given the fact that even I didn't mention this before, but in the Clone Wars and in Rebels, the Mandalorian's like battle cry was for Mandalore. And now that Mandalore is completely decimated by the Empire after this purge, it's I don't know, I think it's it's really interesting that there's like this resolute battle cry. It's not even a battle cry, is it? It's, it's like, like this is it's, the way it's reminding It's a mantra. Yeah, like this like, is this the is way how, to get back to Mandalore. Yes, like this is the way. I don't know. I think that it it's so it's interesting because it's so strong and it's like you can say it in so many different applications. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a it's such a good line. Like there's a 
the good thing about the show is while the lines are few and far between, it makes for a really tight script. And because of that, you get things like I have spoken and this is the way and like already honestly instantly iconic Star Wars lines like this that just totally makes sense. And I have spoken and this is the way kind of exist in the same form (laughs) of like, yeah, this is it. Like, I said what I said, and this is the only way forward. <laughs> it's like a, um, you know? not a code word, but like a, uh, yeah, like you said, like a, ma- a mantra that when you say it, when it's heard, especially by someone like that armorer, the conversation's over. <laughs> yeah. Like this is yeah. the way, at the end of the day, yeah, he's got this best car. Yes, it's Imperial, whatever. But this is the way that we return back to a time when we can be for Mandalore. Yeah. And this is the way that we have to do things right now because of everything that has happened to us from, like, the Empire and whoever else. So yes. It is very much like a conversation's over. I've spoken, and this is the way. <laughs> they go together. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Nolte Ugnot, maybe he's a Mandalorian, and he just doesn't want to tell us. <laughs> well, he's never met one before, so he's only heard the stories. He could be lying to us. <laughs> Just saying. Sure. <laughs> or he could have run into an unmasked Mandalorian who was undercover. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. So let's go back to the actual rescue because we had a lot of interesting tidbits that came out of that whole sequence too, not just the actual action sequence of it, but the Mandalorian's conversation with the doctor. And I believe his name is Dr. Pershing. Harshing. I don't know, actually. An, I turned on subtitles the second time I watched this episode <laughs> because there was a oh, lot nice. that I missed. And I think it's Pershing or Parshing. Not really sure. It's one of those. But you have put in the notes that the doctor becomes slightly sympathetic in this scene because he says, I protected him. If it wasn't for me, he would already be dead, implying Baby Yoda, of course. And the Mandalorian, in turn, leaves him alive, which I think is a really interesting decision that he made and will honestly probably bite the Mandalorian in the butt the- later on. Yes. <laughs> because again, <laughs> yes. where is the client in all of this hubbub? Now, I didn't... So, when the Mandalorian first approaches the client's bunker, whatever it is, uh, his residence, his his Airbnb, um, he... <laughs> he overhears or he picks up on the frequency of a conversation between the client and Dr. Pershing Pershing, and the client says have you extracted all you needed from the assets and my theory is that they are extracting midichlorians I just think this is really interesting because I think that this totally tracks given like the status symbol that like when Yoda's on the table when baby Yoda sorry not Yoda baby Yoda (laughs) different is on the table and he has that like he's being kind of I don't know if it's operated on but it kind of it lends itself to the same imagery there's all those charts which are really familiar to us as people who have seen the Phantom Menace when they (laughs) give those give those midi-chlorian readouts and I think this is a really good theory I still I'm holding on to the aging theory, but I do think that like maybe it's both because the midichlorians could be like so powerful. I think that's I, I, I'm like 100 percent sold on midichlorians being what they're extracting because I think because our big question this series so far has been 
does whoever wants baby Yoda at the end of the line, do they know that baby Yoda is force sensitive? And if it is just for anti-aging properties, which makes a lot of sense, perhaps they don't know that he's force sensitive. But I think that if it is established, and I think there's a lot of good, and I think maybe it has been actually since this episode came, not since this episode came out, but that I have heard since, but that, like the Yoda species has incredibly high levels of midi-chlorines. And if that is something that you can extract or they're trying to learn that technology that is both force powers and anti-aging, it's like two birds, one stone. And I – yeah, like the fact that it goes back to Phantom Menace time, how old this kid is, I think that – I think that makes perfect sense and that – falls right in line with a lot of the things we're probably going to be seeing in Rise of Skywalker, you know, going back to the beginning of this whole saga, which is the Phantom Menace. And I I just really hope it's midi-glorians because they are still canon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that it's great because uh, Dave and John's banter, while sometimes slightly annoying, you know, John has said things about like, you know, Dave is making me really appreciate their prequels and like I've really warmed up to it. And what's more prequely than the midichlorians <laughs> and like understanding the midichlorians? Because, yes, the original trilogy did ex- like talk about the force and, you know, Luke using the force, whatever. But the prequels is- are really where we begin to understand the intricacies of it. It, it was defined by midichlorians. Like we saw these numbers behind them and. I don't know. I just think that in order for John, like, I I just think that I think about that quote in relationship to this, if they are extracting midi-chlorians, because I don't know, imagine the story, imagine the writing of like, oh, yeah, what, what, what can we have inside of this baby that was so powerful? Well, it'll probably be the force. OK, but what does that mean? How does one even extract the force? Well, you go back to like the microscopic understanding of the force, which is a midi-chlorian and the amount, the, the fact that it has been measured, but hasn't been measured in so long. So I don't that know. Techno- that technology was lost with the Jedi. Yeah. And you have to wonder like, OK, so then you have this, you know, specialized uh, doctor who uh, has like a Camino K- in symbol on his clothing. So I mm-hmm. think that like it's easy to immediately jump to cloning. And I think that's fair, even though I do think the cloning theories are just sometimes pretty ridiculous. I, I, I and it's I, I even thought that. But I think that I think that it's far more interesting that the cloning technology, not just like cloning one person, but like understanding like how one regenerates any sort of body with the midichlorians intact. Like what, what could they do well, with if that? You I create more midichlorians. You clone the midichlorians. Yes, exactly. And again, it goes back to this whole idea that like George Lucas wanted to explore things in his next trilogy that wasn't going to be the sequel trilogy and about like the microbiotic understanding of the force. Like what? <laughs> so you have to wonder what is there given the fact that this this show was kind of overseen and was discussed with George Lucas like what are the intricacies there that are being discussed and also at this time so we're five years after Return of the Jedi is this the point where where Luke I mean Ben at this point is like four years old but is Luke really thinking about like 
what is my next step as the fact that I have to pass on what I know, Yoda's final words to me or that I maybe I should start a Jedi school. I think that he started the school. Well, actually, I'm not sure if that's established yet. If he started the school with Ben. He I I think it was established that he didn't want to start a new Jedi school. Um, and then he did because of some of the fears they felt about Ben Solo. But he wasn't going to. Yeah, but regardless, I do think that in terms of the Empire, you have to wonder if the Jedi, a.k.a. Luke, a.k.a. Force user, are the enemy at this point and are seen as the enemy and the reason for the fall of the Empire. So, of course, termination of certain Force users is priority, but also how can we combat that and how can we use that for ourselves rather than only good? I just think that it is amazing that this Boba Fett show is going to be about midi-chlorians <laughs> and a baby. <laughs> Sometimes I just can't get over the fact that the show is about a baby. I mean, honestly, like the biggest risk this show will take if this is true is midi-chlorians, hands down, even over baby Yoda, because <laughs> like the number of conversations I've had with people that have been like, I hate Jar Jar Banks and I hate midi chlorians. Like that's their that's where they're at. And like fair, whatever. Again, not every story is for you. And you're allowed to dislike Jar Jar Banks as a character. He's not my favorite character either, but there's more to the movie. Anyway, midi chlorians are the things that everyone hangs their hat on <laughs> in <laughs> The Phantom Menace. And the fact that Dave Filoni was like, again, if this is true would be like, you know what? I'm going to bring that back. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like in a new era that it would give the opportunity to improve on our understanding of that in the yeah. same way that Clone Wars improves on our understanding of the prequels? A hundred percent. And I, I think that that's part of it too. It's like that was so so limited. And the Clone Wars too even discussed the midi-chlorians um, and how like the Jedi, it's because the Jedi are becoming increasingly shrouded in the dark side overall. It's tampering their connection to the Force physically. And so they're having to resort to things like the midi-chlorians to determine something they used to be able to know intuitively and they don't anymore. And that's part of the problem. And so now it's like – it's now it's evil using that same technology. Um, I don't know. I just like when I thought of it, I was like, wow, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is it. We're getting midi clearing content in original trilogy timeline. Oh boy. <laughs> I just, I hope so. I really, really hope so. Um, not just to be petty, a little bit to be petty, but I also think that it makes a lot of sense, honestly. Like it could, it it, ta it covers all of the things that we've that we've been discussing anyway, and others have too about, you know, are they after the force side of it? Are they after the anti aging properties? Is it just the rarity of the species? Like, what exactly are they after the asset for? And I think that the midi chlorians, for as much as people critique them, do encompass all of those things actually. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I yes. <laughs> I really want it to be mini chlorines. I agree with you. I guess we'll see. I mean, I, this show is moving at such a pace that, like, who knows what's going to be revealed. And it seems like um, John and Dave really like this idea of revealing something exciting and new, 
each episode. And I think that's a major benefit of the weekly schedule and probably why they stayed so true to I think it's going to be weekly because the shock factor needed to be there in each episode. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that with like a bingeable series. You just don't. You get some slow episodes and everything like that. And I wonder, I bet it's going to be one of those things because as the Mandalorian under- begins to understand what the force is now that he has this child, he was completely unfamiliar with it before. I think that just like the audience, you know, the Mandalorian is also going to be on this journey of understanding what exactly the Empire wants and how can he properly take care of this baby. Mm-hmm. My question is, did Dr. Pershing actually extract any anything, many clearings or otherwise, from the child? It looked like they were right in the middle of it. Yeah, they were either starting, going in for round two, or uh, were finished. So I guess that's something we'll find out later. And if if it is midichlorians and if some of them have been extracted, are we going to see less force capabilities from Baby Yoda? Like, will it be noticeable that he can't do what he could before? Are they replenishable? Oh, man. I'm very excited. So many questions. A lot of questions. Something that was cool. So after he retrieved the child, which like, thank God, <laughs> I <laughs> like preach, like pray, like yeah, all those things. Plus. One of the coolest moves when he was escaping this Im- Imperial Airbnb, as he referred to it, <laughs> was using the whistling birds. And that was so cool. Like, wasn't that the coolest moment? Yeah, it was. It was. I When the armorer was making them, I was like, okay, what are these? Yeah, I'm like, okay, those are going to come up a little bit later. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Chekhov's gun, <laughs> you know? I, um, I liked how she was like, these are super rare. So, like, use them sparingly. <laughs> Five which, minutes later, which he's is like, like deploy. <laughs> yeah, which I think is great because this is kind of perhaps the biggest fight for his life, the only time he's ever gone against the code. So, of course, yeah. he's going to use them here. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that's interesting is the word bird because, yes, they are whistling. They make the noise and everything. But the first thing I thought about was the firebird, which is the rebel insignia, which is what Sabine really created Mm -hmm. for the Rebel Alliance. And Sabine herself in Rebels is a Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really interesting. There's definitely something here and like definitely something to be drawn here from like Sabine starting with a bird, Sabine herself being obsessed with explosives and weapons. Mm -hmm. And then also the whistling bird being a thing. (laughs) And I... I like you have the firebird and you have the whistling bird and both of them were created and used by Mandalorians. Like it can't be a coincidence. It has to be really similar mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. It made me think of like canaries in mines and how they would start like they were what you used to alert you that something was wrong. And, and like it, oxygen was it unbreathable. Yeah, like a dangerous situation. And so whistling bird, when you hear it coming around, then you're already dead. Once you hear it, you're already yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Super powerful, just like the rebels. So cool. Yeah. It was a good moment. One of the things that you had put in our notes, which is just like a, a sweet moment, is if we're going to get a new baby cart. <laughs> and I hope so. <laughs> if the man, you suggested in our notes that maybe the Mandalorian would reforge a new baby cart from the best car material. And it's for the foundlings. I swear to God, if we see the Mandalorian melt his new armor in order to be a new baby cart for baby Yoda, I will lose it. 
it's just I think that well that's why I just said the whole thing about like it's for the foundlings mm-hmm. like they reserve all this Beskar for the foundlings and guess what baby Yoda's kind of a foundling so it's yeah. so important it's just it will but then this goes back to our lone wolf and cub thing too is that like the exactly. baby cart lone wolf and cub is a Swiss army knife and so is he going to install the whistling birds onto ba- like is baby Yoda going to deploy whistling <laughs> the whistling yes. bird <laughs> The answer is yes, because I can't imagine, even though I think the fan art is adorable, I just can't imagine ever Baby Yoda getting like a full set of armor. That's not happening. <laughs> and I I do think that like his enclosure could be something though, especially because we've seen it and it has precedent in the inspiration for the show, which is Lone Wolf and Cub, among other things. Yeah, I think it will be great to see that. I mean, I think Lone Wolf and Cub is obviously the biggest comparison um, for obvious reasons. And I hope it's something a lot of people have critiqued that they haven't really talked about that enough about how this is an original Japanese story that is pretty much copied (laughs) as far as like the setup with the Mandalorian and the child. And I hope that now that we have more episodes out and especially once we start getting a lot more behind the scenes features and things that were filmed like during the shooting process that it's something that they'll talk a lot more about because... Like, we've now watched two of the films, and the parallels that we've drawn, I think, are, like, incredible, even just beyond the initial setup of the show of a father and a child. Um, I think there's so much more going on in those films, and presumably in the manga, which we have not read, um, that are really inspirational and pulled from in this series. So I really hope that they get to talk about it more because the films are incredible. Like you and I have had such a great time with them. Um, So I really hope that they are able to talk about it in more in depth because it's definitely something they should be talking more about. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I just have to mention that we had this conversation in our Patreon Discord, which if you guys ever want to talk about the Mandalorian spoilers, like right when they come out, like our Discord always like blows up. It's great. Love it. Love our Discord. But I was talking a lot about this and it was kind of brought up and everything. But I think it's important also to mention that this trope of like armored warrior with a child or like armored metaphorically and symbolically even with a child in order to soften him. Obviously, it's not limited to Lone Wolf and Cub. Mm -hmm. We just mentioned it because it has been mentioned. But, you know, it was even brought up. Like a movie that I love that's Natalie Portman's first movie, Leon the Professional, so good. And it that exists almost to do the same thing, to soften Leon, like Natalie Portman's like 12-year-old self softens this hitman. And you get this so often, especially in like True Grit too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I brought that up already, but exists in the same way of you have a child softening up like a, a lone gunslinger. And um, you have you see this throughout. It's like it it is a it is a trope, and yeah. it's not only in Lone Wolf and Cub. That said, of course, it has been cited as a major influence. And I do. I'm like, oh my god, where's the BT? Where's the behind the scenes stuff? Like, I need mm-hmm. it. Yeah, a hundred percent. The the trope exists and has existed for a long time. And so it's not the like it's the setup. That's the clear connection because you're right. The trope is present in a million different other forms. The setup at this show is what draws it back to that connection, which the the creators have said themselves. But 
again, I hope that we get to talk about it more because a lot of the themes and stuff that get brought up in those movies, and I assume in the, in the original stories as well, are very like Star Warsy themselves. So it would make sense for them to come up. Um, so I hope that they talk about yeah. it a lot more. It'd be interesting to see if any like additional concept art, if there's any kind of melding of that original like manga series with some of the concept art that was drawn up for Mandalorian. I think that would be really cool to see. I wonder if they did any of the um, I don't know. Yeah. One of the things that I brought up in the last episode that we saw a little piece of here about Lone Wolf and Cub is that the the lone wolf, Ito is his name. He um he whenever he gets an assassin job, he always demands to know the truth about why he's having to kill this person, which I thought was kind of unique for his character. And I wondered if we would see any of that with the Mandalorian. And in this episode, we did get to see how that went, uh, you know, explicitly against the code of the guild. And that's what we said. We were like, most, like, assassins, they don't want to know anything. They just want to know who they're supposed to kill and give them the money. But the lone wolf is obviously different in that regard. And here in The Mandalorian, we have the guild who their code is to not ask questions and to forget the job once it's complete. But the Mandalorian just demands to know answers. And that's what propels him forward to actually, or not propels him forward he was already going to save the child but it's just part of the reasoning too so yeah i was like oh yeah i saw some of that payoff too (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so let's talk about grief karga because i think this character is super interesting i think carl weathers does a really great job of making him likable and also sinister like you don't really know where you stand with him i was surprised to see him like kind of start the standoff because before he had been kind of warm and, you know, the guy that you meet in the bar. I think that's kind of like the character that they were going for. But obviously he's like the head of the bounty hunter guild. I should have never trusted him. You should never trust him, <laughs> you know, and the fact <laughs> that he gave all those uh, trackers to like, honestly, like a hundred bounty hunters, right? Mm-hmm. It's super interesting. And I just think I was surprised that he almost died in this episode. I was kind of prepared for him to die because it seemed like he had kind of turned on a dime. But it felt like because the bullet like didn't go all the way through him, mean, he was saved by the Beskar steel, which he got from the Mandalorian. I wonder if that will come back around in the end, the next time we see Grief, because and I just think his name is really funny because I think it is pretty on the nose about like (laughs) what you like you enter like this kind of sorrow filled grief when you, you know, do this like shady business and report to somebody, never take any time off, whatever. Um, Yeah, I I think that it will come back around, though, that he was saved not only by like the money that he made off made off the Mandalorian so it's like a little bit of like an instant regret about like oh yeah the only reason why I have this is because of the Mandalorian (laughs) but also this like imperial like imperial branded Beskar there's some symbolic understanding there that like the dirty money saved him also so I think it can go both ways but I definitely think we'll see like I wonder what their next their next appearance together is going to be just because I think that they it could go either way. I think that it's really interesting to also consider the fact that Grief had the line, you can't go anywhere. I'm your only hope. Like what? The fact that he said, I'm your only hope. And in our Star Wars subconscious, we're supposed to th- like, obviously, our mind immediately goes to Leia, right? Mm-hmm. And hearing it kind of in this reversal, like coaxing way really surprised me. Like, what did you make of that? 
it definitely makes you sit up. And you're like, wait a second. You can't say that. <laughs> right? <laughs> it felt like, you, you know, you're not allowed to say that. But then I think that it, it operated in the sense that, like, you know that that was kind of like a dirty use. Because it's not, grief is not his only hope <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. It makes me wonder if he will, like, if we'll see grief go on a character journey, too, where at the end he is working with the Mandalorian like they're on the same team at some point and he is actually his only hope at that point like for him and baby Yoda I don't know that that could be interesting I think yeah everything you said about grief I completely agree with I think he's definitely portrayed as like the the boss who is in it for himself and his best friends with whoever his best bounty hunter is at the time and that's who is going to be his favorite and as soon as you turn on him like, there is no loyalty there. Um, and we saw that with the Mandalorian. Like, he was so excited. And I don't think the money – did the best car he got came from the client, not the Mandalorian, right? Yes. Okay. So I think that, like, like kind of what we were saying about the importance of the best car and the fact that it is this dirty imperial money that saved him, it's such a different – like, I thought that the Mandalorian would try to get that best car back from grief. Also, I was like, why the heck does the Mandalorian just leave the door to his ship open? Right, right. I thought about that, too. As he's walking in, I was like, no. I was like, yeah. you did not. Rookie mistake. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was like, you just, like, had to win back the parts for your ship. <laughs> why aren't you locking up? <laughs> <laughs> where's the key fob that you like beep twice to hear it's all locked up yeah. <laughs> beep, just, <beep>. Had to, <laughs> just had to rebuild my entire ship by hand with a tiny ugnot gonna leave the door open <laughs> and i was like oh boy grief's in there grief's in there <laughs> and then he was and he was um i love how the carbonite freezing chamber though has really gotten its use it's really <laughs> been like worth the investment that the mandalorian put into it totally i must say yeah i think groove is definitely going to be an interesting one to watch because i and i love that scene of him in the bar when he sees his tracker go off and then in the background you see all the other trackers go off too and he just kind of looks at it knowingly and he knows oh, so what the mandalorian good. does it's a really good moment and you so know good that he's not going to be pro-Mandalorian. <laughs> he's going to be very against it. And I loved him trying to barter with him. Of course, like hearing him say, I'm your only hope is, again, like a, nope, that, that line's not for you, sir. <laughs> you can't use that line. <laughs> um, that, that whole scene was just so great. One of the other things I loved about this episode that we see in a lot of film making, obviously, is the lighting and time of day and how that changes and how that really sets the stage for what's happening both externally, like on the sets, but then also internally for our characters too. And like, for example, it was golden hour, twilight, when the Mandalorian comes back for Baby Yoda, which is, of course, like a moment of transformation. We talked about hour, magic yeah, hour. Mm -hmm. And then it has become nighttime when he is being attacked, but then also when he is rescued too, which is obviously it's, it's dark. <laughs> um, and then Dawn is breaking once again as he flies above the clouds in the Razor Crest to leave 
whatever planet that they're on and to go I don't know where. <laughs> yeah. I there, I think that that goes back to our discussion about like passing through the arch mm-hmm. and how exiting through like I think it just all kind of ties together about this like point of transformation and like understanding that this is a drastic decision of change that is going to happen for our main protagonist and that like that you're right that the weather and like the the time of day and everything needs to be like uh, paid attention to and it really just it gives me like complete fairy tale vibes honestly anytime mm-hmm. something like this comes up because it's really only in these like fantastical moments that it's like really noticeable that uh that like that these are true moments of transformation i mean obviously it's not limited to that but it just it gives me that vibe a little bit yeah absolutely it was something it's definitely a point of comparison with the last episode uh and how I remember that it wasn't something that I loved in the last episode was at the end when he's repairing the ship and we kind of it's very choppy how we go through like two or three days <laughs> of yeah. time of them building the ship. But I think – and you had brought this up too that the director, um, Rick F- Fumoe? Fama Ua. Fama Ua. Mm-hmm. Um, how his – like one of his films, Dope, dealt with like drug use and he like tended to do like more trippy things. And I think that that montage like seems like it would fit his style a lot more. I haven't seen his films yet, so I can't speak to that exactly. But from what I know – it sounds like that could be like more in his lane. Wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, in his wheelhouse, exactly. Whereas there was like this stark contrast to how the passage of time was handled in Deborah Chow's episode. And for me, this one worked better. But I like how it's very clear that we do have different perspectives in these episodes and how things like the passage of time are something that we can look at and be like, this was Rick's style, this was Deborah's style, and like all of these things that we're getting with these very prolific and good directors. It just makes me really excited for what we're going to see from everyone else. Right. I think that some people who listen to the show know that I'm a really big Breaking Bad fan. And the spinoff show, Better Call Saul, Deborah Chow has directed a couple of those episodes and they have consistently been like the best episodes of the seasons. And Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, if you are familiar with one but not the other, really do deal with like the passes of time in an interesting way. Like you very clearly know where you are in the day because it's like a business setting, an office, like the beginning of the day. Like you follow all these things with different camera angles that uh, really kind of ground you in a t- place and time. And I think you're you hit the nail on the head by kind of pointing that out with Deborah Chow in a way that I don't think you really a hundred percent got in the last episode when even though you did get a lot of those like angsty sunset shots and all these things in the last episode which not to say those are bad I actually think those were fantastic and I want more of them because they're just so gorgeous mm-hmm. but I do think that you're way more grounded in the understanding of time in this story in this episode because you needed to be you needed to understand how long time had passed since the drop off of the child and the pickup of the child and when you're leaving because all of those moments were action moments and like understanding i don't know each time that like time advanced you know the t- the clock was ticking and it's mm-hmm. like it's something that we we talk about a lot especially with the first season of Star Wars Resistance if you haven't watched it but there's a ticking clock in that entire show as we track closer to the force awakens but with this one the ticking clock was the safety of the child yeah, absolutely. And I think it 
was so good. Yeah, um, and I think that I think that it's really interesting even to have this conversation because and it's a conversation I don't think we've ever had the opportunity to do in this sort of sense, in this like weekly sense. I don't think you get like a real clear and this isn't a dig, this is just how it is. I think in animation, I don't think you get like a clear understanding of the difference of directors sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um just because I think it's a shorter show, less stylized. I think it's more I don't know, like plot based, not it's definitely just it's just not as stylized. I think sometimes it's harder too as people who are not as well versed in the differences between like how you an- how you direct something in animation, like a camera yeah. pan in animation versus a camera pan in real life. And I yes. for one thing, I don't think that's something you and I are as well versed in. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we're we are way more versed in understanding of film and like me's and all those things when it comes to like looking at a shot water animation we can tell you water and oh for sure definitely tell you a lot about that so speaking of water animation caitlin we didn't talk about this and i know people on our our, when they listen to our show they know that like we love to talk about the ridiculousness of how we're obsessed with like the advancement in water animation in frozen 2 how big is that water i was beside myself i was like this is real yeah okay we're gonna blow past it because i don't want to get too spoilery but man yeah whoa Anyway, I think that we're having a really cool conversation right now, week to week, understanding the director's styles. And I think that we can see Ryan Johnson's clear style in The Last Jedi. You can see J.J. Abrams' clear style. And I think that it's like it's clear you can compare the movies in this way and everything but it is so fun to have a weekly comparison and like artistic stamp on a TV show. And I think that's just so different. We've never really had that before. Mm-hmm. And I also I just don't think it's a negative thing. I know that a lot of people had talked about before about like, well, that's interesting. Like you're gonna have directors who have very specific styles, right? Like you have you have Dave Filoni, who I think has a very specific style. You have Rick Famuyiwa, who has a specific style, Deborah Chow. Especially like I think this conversation came up a lot with when talking about Taika Watiti, who has like a super clear style, mm-hmm. right? Like the clearest style almost of um humor and like wildness and like absurdity and i think there was a lot of conversation and still is about like does that even fit star wars and how is that even going to come up in the mandalorian and he is directing the finale which is really interesting and i'm really intrigued to see how that is going but i have to say in our conversations this difference in style isn't taking away from the show as a whole for me it's not like i think that each episode feels like a different show entirely no it definitely doesn't and i think a lot of or a big piece of that is the music and how that's carried through really well in all these episodes i know that that is a really big connecting piece for me right now um and i think that I don't think we've talked enough about it, honestly. I know. It's so good. And it's so fun that it's released Yeah, weekly. it is. One of the things that they had talked about at that press conference, the the screening uh, last week, I guess. I guess that was only last week. Um, or oh, two weeks. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> we're like almost halfway through the series, but we're only a week and a half in. <laughs> I'm tired. It's fine. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, 
<laughs> but they talked about how um, they because we were talking about how they had the CGI and like some of the visual effects they were able to actually see on set when they were there for with some of the uh, technology and tools that were created by ILM. But the, what they also talked about in that press conference was how Ludwig and I can't remember his last name right now. I think it starts with a G though. Uh, how Ludwig would come to set like with basically sketches of the music and that they like the cast and crew would listen to it on their like on headphones and stuff like that and I think that that is it's so cool how the creative process here you had a lot of these elements which are usually which are usually only done post filming being available to the actors and crew on set I don't know I think it like to be able to have as Pedro Pascal to have heard the Mandalorian theme that Ludwig was creating, I think would put you in such the right headspace for that character itself. And I would imagine was one, really fun to hear, but then two, also like in a way aided your performance in a way too. And I just think that was really cool. And going back to like the discussion between animation direction and, you know, seeing these different stylized takes, it definitely hasn't taken away anything. I think it's really exciting to actually talk about the differences while experiencing this continuous storyline but I hope that that's something we get to hear Dave talk about and he's talked about it a little bit in one featurette or something like that about you know having to stop filming at the end of the day and he was like oh yeah you guys can't film at nighttime <laughs> it's like it's dark so funny <laughs> he was like I've never had that problem yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that we do actually get to hear more about those differences as people like us and a lot of our listeners are really interested in that. And Dave is someone who is doing all Star Wars all the time, but now is getting to experience it in an animation sense and then also in a live action sense. I just hope that we get to hear more about those differences because I find it really fascinating and I know you do too. Yep, Definitely. Oh, this was such a good episode. I wish I could live in this episode forever. It's really good. I wish I could just see Yoda's floppy ears, see how many pieces of the razor crest he takes apart. Um, <laughs> so that cute. little ball is totally a choking hazard. But it's so adorable. <laughs> it definitely is. I like how it's just screwed on, too. I'm like, you know, I guess that makes sense why he was able to rebuild it so quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was like, you know what? That is super, like, tactical. Like, I totally get that. What else? Like, don't you have – I feel like that is, like, super earthy, you know, that it is just kind of, like, screwed on. Yeah. Like, so. Yeah, it is. I'm like, is this really fit for space travel? Okay. For hyperspace. Well, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. Hope you make it to your next location. <laughs> yeah this episode was so good i'm really excited for next week i really hope that we get to meet cardoon and i can't wait i hope it's not the end of the episode i hope we get to see her pretty early on and i'm just i'm still loving the show still getting up at 6 6 30 in the morning to watch it we'll see what happens after thanksgiving i'm gonna be honest (laughs) but it definitely will be something i'm watching on friday I got to get up early to watch it because I can't go the whole day without watching it. Yeah, no. I have to get up yeah, early. Yeah, no, you definitely And it's not that much earlier than what we get up for, for, for work. It's it's so worth it. Yeah, 100%. I, suffering an entire work day and not wanting to be spoiled at all just because I think we're living in the time period of event television and this feels like – doesn't it feel like 
I, at least I do. I feel like everyone is talking about The Mandalorian. I can't exist at work. I heard so many people at the movie theater this weekend talking about The Mandalorian and Disney Plus. It's like the world is really talking about this and I don't I want to experience it for myself and it because it means so much for me to me I have to get up early. Yeah, well, I'm not working Friday, so I definitely won't be getting up probably, but I will be watching it. Oh, I see what you mean. When I, I wake up. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I kind of am working Friday, but that's a different story. <laughs> Let's get into Charlotte's work schedule, everyone. <laughs> Black Friday, man. It sucks. <laughs> anyway, next Friday, Black Friday, whether you're shopping or working or sleeping in, I hope you enjoy the next episode of The Mandalorian. We, of course, will be back to talk about it again. I don't know when, but probably like Sunday night, Monday. Yeah. It'll be a little bit later than usual. Yeah, just because of the holiday. So if you are celebrating Thanksgiving next week, I hope you have a great holiday season. Uh, We will also be having our Resistance episode this week too, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, Last week's episode of Resistance was really good, so definitely jump on board that train while you still can if you have not already. 10 for 10, recommend. But is there anything else that we have to say about this week's episode of The Mandalorian? No, it was so good. Oh, wait. There is one more thing we have to say. Uh, Deborah Chow is going to be directing the Obi-Wan series. And this – God bless. Yes. That's all we have to say. God bless. bless. (laughs) I'm very excited. I'm just so happy. I'm very excited. I'm so happy. Given the fact that this this episode had so much, like, perfect balance of emotional angst Mm -hmm. and – Action. And action-packed sequences that were so tightly done. That's all I want from Obi-Wan. I think that we're going to get the angstiest show with the Obi-Wan series. because That's just eternal sadness for Obi-Wan. And I have no doubt that Deborah can execute that perfectly. It's going to be the Revenge of the Sith novelization on steroids. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, 100%. I need it. <laughs> more. More <angst>. yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, that was the last thing we had to say. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you want to find us online, as we've been saying in all our episodes recently, we will be leaving the Twitterverse uh, probably in the beginning of December in order to avoid more spoilers for The Rise of Skywalker. But until then, you can find us at Skytalkers Pod, which is the podcast Twitter handle or our personal ones. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Crarity. We also have our websites, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, YouTube. We're on YouTube now, like our episodes. Oh, my God. Yeah, we are. Yeah, our <laughs> It's safe to subscribe now. I have fully filled the backlog for a while now. If you guys are already currently a subscriber on our YouTube channel, it took me like three days to upload all of our episodes onto it. So everyone's subscriber box was like fully full of old episodes and I'm so sorry, (laughs) but now it'll be intermittent whenever I upload an episode. Yeah. So if you're interested in listening to us on YouTube, you can do that now too. We would love to see you over there. But uh, if you haven't followed us there on any of those platforms, please do. And also if you wanted to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes, that would be a wonderful Thanksgiving gift to us. <laughs> so please consider doing that. If you haven't already, it helps other people find our show and we really appreciate it. And if you're interested in more ways to support us, you can also check out our Patreon. Just search Sky Talkers and I guarantee you'll find us. <laughs> True. Okay. So I want to say a huge thank you to our amazing patrons. 
Joey, Jason, Fiorella, Marty, Spencer, Kathy Gee, Jenna, Jessica, Mike, Thomas, Bridget, Shelbo, James, Kate, Nathan, Sam, Bailey, Eric, Kelly, Neil, Mary, Larry, James, Sarah, Susanna, Z, Cherie, Diana, Becca, Lynn, Katie, Courtney, Amy, Kelly, Jim, Suara, Bradley, Garrett, Debo, Irina, Edith, Jacqueline, Rachel, Lady Vader, John, Kevin, Ian, Raz, Lakshana, Candice, Ewan, Tom, Daniel, Heather, Brooklyn, Kimma, Julia, Matthew, Captain Britain, Jackson, Carrie, Jackson, Raphael, David, Ada, Liz, Christian, Nicole, Jonathan, Rachel, Aaron, Brooke, Rebecca, Kathy, Ira Bell, Kimberly, Vundacast Productions, Christian, Adam, Megan, Courtney, Santara, Thomas, John, Megan, Kate, Matthew, Fernanda, Chell, Manny, David, Claudia, Kate, Lady Valkyrie, Jenny, Blessed Cheesemaker, Danny, Lumpararu, Patrick, James, Hammy, Neil, The Dorky Diva Show, Megan, Stewart, Kyle, Jennifer, Kells, Chastity, Aliyah, Travis, Katie, Alyssa, Rebecca, Delaney, Angela, Ali, Natalia, Daz, Serene, Shireen, Molly, Amy, Jared, Claire, Brad, Caitlin, Rebecca, Helly, Scott, BJ, Casey, Lauren, Tom, Kirsty, The Clashing Sabres Podcast, and Chuck. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods. The Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom.